Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to be a sponsor of the Planetrillion Trees podcast, please see our website at theplanetrillionreespodcast.com and click on the Sponsors tab. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on February 17th, 2023. Jennifer Alger is president of Far West Forest Products and has been working with Urban Salvaged Woods for over 25 years. She is the director of the Urban Wood Network Western Region, a membership network that connects tree managers, arborists, lumber producers, and makers to connect all links in the urban wood supply chain. She is also the founder of USRW Incorporated, which developed the first ever urban wood standards for North America. These standards will be a game changer for the industry and for the first time allow chain of custody and certification for urban wood known as USRW Certified Urban Wood. She has worked with an expert team of developers and customer experience specialists on the build out of the urban lumber market with Ancestry, an inventory management system and enterprise application that will allow users to easily adhere to the industry standards, track the chain of custody, manage their inventory, and better manage and grow their urban lumber businesses. Additionally, Jennifer has recently opened a store in California where Urban Wood Network members can sell their USRW certified urban wood. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. Jennifer, we're delighted that you could be with us today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So we've been doing this podcast for, well, we're into our third year, Jennifer, and Eva and I were just kind of going through some of the guests that we've had in the past. And I have to say, as an arborist, I've learned a lot about repurposing wood and the salvaging industry, if that's what we want to call it. How did you get into uh, the wood industry yourself and uh, to the Urban Wood Network, of which, as I recall, you are the Western Region Coordinator? 
That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. So I was actually into the wood industry in general. I was born into a forestry family. Uh, it was uh, much more, you know, traditional forestry. And then it had segued into other other things. And in the 90s, I took over the marketing for the company, for the family business, and, you know, put my marketing hat on. And I started to look at what things separated our wood products companies from other companies around. You know, what what were we doing that was different? You know, that whole marketing 101 thing. And as I started to look at how we differentiated ourselves, I looked at the source of where the product that became our wood products came from. And I was going, oh my goodness, there's a story to tell there. And, you know, we would get excited about the backstory of a certain tree that we were able to rescue or salvage, but we never really put that connection into we're getting all of our woods, even the ones that are just from, you know, the average street. That's still a beautiful story. And we need to tell that story. And so we started to market our business as urban as salvaged and as reclaimed and urban being woods that came from an urban environment you know city street the park we have trees that are at our company that are from the state capitol they have this amazing story of how they were gifted you know as a civil war memorial they come down in a storm instead of those going to the landfill being chipped burned they come to a mill now and we have those and we, we were able to repurpose those. So that's a beautiful story. So that's how I got into Urban Wood. We didn't know what to really call it. So our tagline for my company was Urban Salvaged and Reclaimed Woods. And where was the family business? Uh, we're in Northern California. It was in a little town called Sheridan and we recently moved or we're moving, expanding. And, and so now most of the sales go out of Oliver, California. Okay, I looked that up in the map. Just north of Sacramento. Sacramento. Okay. Yeah. Now, I have to bring this up because it just flipped in my head. I had been working with the Lenai, Lenape Indians here in the East, mm-hmm. and I had delivered a talk about the Treaty Elm back in 2010 at the Philadelphia Flower Show. And that tree was probably the very first urban wood story, now mm. that we're talking. Yeah. Because... The president's desks were made from it. Inkwells were made from it. Mm-hmm. All kinds of specialty items that were made from it. There was not a scrap of that wood that was wasted, including the scion wood, which was is now housed at the Haverford College, where they started growing the offspring. And there's a great, I think it's a grand, grandchild of that tree on yeah. the campus. So... Okay. Even back then. And, and when was that? When, when did that come out? That came down in 1810. Isn't it amazing? I think if we go back in history, we will see that it's only recently that we took what was amazing and beautiful and life-giving and destroyed it. Yeah, you know, well, we always repurposed it. There, there seemed it's to be a repurpose. It, yeah, it, it was repurposed, and and whether that went to you know to you know fire a building or, or keep people warm or whatever, it's still utilized. It still found found use somehow. And I find it interesting that well, people. I mean, our grandparents used to recycle everything, didn't they? <laughs> well, my, my great my grandmother only had a little a, a galvanized bucket. And she had still had a coal burning stove in the seventies, oh, wow. a heater, <laughs> and she would take that and and she had a wood burning stove in the kitchen, which had part gas, part mm-hmm. wood, 
And she had this galvanized container and that was what she put out for trash. And it was really cinders oh, that she put yeah. out from, this, from, the, from the fire. And, um, and then that, those cinders went to the, the dump and then they were mm-hmm. used for making stucco for homes. The oh, cinders wow. were put into stucco yeah. and, and that's how they got the interesting textures on the outside of house walls by, yeah. by adding the cinder to. So nothing was ever wasted. Everything yeah. was constantly being regenerated or repurposed. Right. Um, right. I'll, I'll have to add the caveat that, you know, uh, in, the early logging in California, <laughs> they would waste some of the best logs because they didn't know what to do with them. So it wasn't all good, but there was some really good things that used to happen <laughs> that I think we forgot about and got away from. <laughs> well, and I, and I also think the new the book that we just um, we just introduced just last week on a podcast that came out yeah. that everybody can listen to is the history of wood. From early on, all the way through till present day, um, John Perlin was put out by Patagonia. And there are some times when they talk about history as being so wasteful and other times that was being very frugal. So it depends on the different time periods and the windows and how how people would waste. And then other times when they wouldn't waste, they wouldn't even think of wasting. Right. And that's, yeah, and that's why these conversations and the Urban Wood Network and things like that are so important because they keep it in the forefront of our minds, how it's all so circular and how we can't get to a place, like we've gotten to a place where we kind of forgot. We need to get back to where we remember that this, we we are responsible. We need to think of tomorrow when we take our actions today. Absolutely. So, can you walk us through, I guess this is kind of the journey that I've been on learning about salvaged wood. Give us your take on how salvaging wood is a good practice, a good thing to do in the context of the climate catastrophe. In regard to the environment, urban wood can be defined as any wood that came from an urban environment, any wood that was deconstructed, having been in use before in a structure of some sort before, and then salvaged woods that may not necessarily be what we traditionally think of as urban, but maybe the highway, you know, for for safety along the highways. And, And you think you're out in the country, but anywhere where man is influencing, where we work, live, or play, and so in California, we have we have the drought, you know, we have had all these beetle and then, you know, the urban environment so close to the forest in, in so many areas and, and the wildfire. And so a lot of those trees fall into the salvage realm as well. And as we're able to repurpose those, you know, everybody knows that, that carbon is stored in trees. That's one of the many, many, many plethora of, of benefits that trees right. give us yes. while they're living. But it doesn't stop there. They can continue to give us benefits by storing carbon once they're removed, if we're able to utilize them to their highest and best use. And when possible, when they're good saw logs, the highest and best use for carbon storage at any anyways is wood products that are in the form of lumber, slabs, or other types of things along that line, millwork, essentially. So would be also like furniture, uh, wood floors, Wood frame, absolutely uh, anything that would have have that kind of purpose where it's actually not deteriorating. Exactly, and and looking beyond too, looking beyond into the total carbon footprint for other materials and how wood just 
for its environmental benefits and, and for its low carbon footprint, not just in the storage value, but in the production value. What you know, what what carbon is utilized to get it from from a raw material into a usable material, that's lower as well than some of the other materials that are out there. And and making sure that we're building with purpose and that we're building things that last can really help with that as well. Um, and what we find is that when people build with wood, with real wood, they they tend to have a longer shelf life as well. They tend not to dispose of this beautiful thing as quickly as one might if it were, you know, plyboard or press board, you know, or some other, you know, plastic or the other plastic. Material. I was just going to say plastic. Yeah. Yeah, you, you hold on to it. You treasure it more, and and not just treasure it uh, because it's beautiful, but there is something. I would I would almost go as far as to say in our souls that that draws us to wood and and draws us to the natural properties that. And I think it's because they were once living. You know, they were once trees, and so. And and so, in addition to the to the carbon and environmental benefits of of wood. Even even once the tree's removed, you know, even once it's in a wood product, it being around wood, a lot of designers now are starting to go, they're starting to really look into biophilic design and, and go, okay, when I walk into a room with steel and plastic and, and concrete, yeah, it might be beautiful. But when I walk into a room with wood, I just go, oh, that's right. nice. You feel it. We well, resonate do you, with do you it. all remember, you know, Hal and I and you, um, when people would value a piece of furniture that somebody gave you because it was it was wood and it was in the family and it's an heirloom yeah it's an heirloom and then all of a sudden there's this period of time where nobody wants anybody else's old furniture is what they would right, call it right. <laughs> because they have to have something that's streamlined right. and we wind up having plastic right. and then we i i saw like it was so heartbreaking i saw one of the um the uh, stores, it's, you know, second time around kind of store. Mm-hmm. They're back in the back bins. All this beautiful wood furniture is in the dumpster. Uh, oh, no. And I'm thinking oh, no. to myself, what is going on here? <laughs> so, yeah, actually, uh, Jennifer, I was, I was just on the West Coast last week, and the magazine that I intended to buy, and I think someone got the last copy when I went back to the grocery store, was a craft magazine entirely devoted to pallets and what oh, you can do yeah, with pallets. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's been really big out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just to take this conversation a little bit further is that idea. So you know, we're salvaging wood. You're bringing it off a historic property. It's a historic mm-hmm. tree with some age. It gets milled. It gets crafted into something beautiful. But on the downside, on the dark side, is when that doesn't happen. So like out here in southeastern Pennsylvania, we do have big hardwoods. A lot of them don't make it to the mill when they're coming out of commercial arboriculture. So what happens is the logs get picked up and hauled out to farmland, you know, where someone's got lots of acres and they can just build a mountain of logs that Mm -hmm. will, you know, deteriorate and return to the earth over, you know, several decades. Right. I guess that's not the end of the world. And then the other piece is that a lot of big logs can now be chipped and they are repurposed I, most of the time for, for the mulch industry. Yeah. 
which isn't awful, but if we can get to a point to where we look at what we used to call waste, every tree dies at some point. Every tree must must come down at some point. It's, It's just part of the cycle. But if we can have a program in place, have a mindset in place that says when these trees come down, we look at them, we categorize them, and we go, this tree cannot be saw log. So this will be our mulch. And mulch is going to have, you know, maybe a two to five year uh, lifespan, you know, for for before the carbon is is emitted. But the tree, if it's converted to lumber, that's going to have a much longer. And, and the average is 20 years when it's converted to lumber, 20 years. Now, those heirlooms, like Eva was talking about, those future antiques that can be made, they're, they're going to far exceed 20 years because we're going to make them in classic designs <laughs> that, that aren't thrown out because it changed so drastically. So, so that's one thing I always recommend. Stay away from the, you know, too many river tables because those at some point are going to go. But you keep that classic design. We're, we're going to have this for life, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's very true. That's very true. So you you wound up going into this through the PR end of your family business. And how now did you get so many other people involved? So what I did is our company, so our company, Far West Forest Products, sells wood. Um, in the 90s, we bought our first wood miser. And we bought a Woodmiser sawmill. And a few years later, Woodmiser approaches us and said, hey, you want to try this little thing selling these? You know? mm-hmm. and, and so we did. We became Woodmiser representatives for California and Nevada. And in doing so, I, um, I started looking at, uh, you know, the Woodmisers were primarily used in traditional, you know, traditional forestry. You know, they'd get coal logs from, you know, from here or there. Um, and they'd be milling up. But we had a few people who were arborists who were seeing the value in the urban trees, you know, specifically the really high dollar ones, the walnuts, the, you know, the stuff with burl, et cetera. And I was like, you know, I think if I can showcase how affordable these blades are, I can get everybody to stop wasting trees. And so I talked Woodmiser into letting me host some seminars and webinars. And Woodmiser helped with with some support for Sam Sherrill's book, Harvesting Urban Timber. And that was, you know, maybe around 2000 or, or somewhere in that ballpark, two, or early 2000s. And so we had Sam come to one of our seminars and, and we started really talking about it. And we started to network and we started really looking at it and going, you know what, why don't we work together to build a brand for this thing called Urban Wood? One of the great things is we're rescuing more urban trees. We're getting more arborists involved, training the arborists, stop cutting them into these little two-foot sections or four-foot sections, start treating this as a resource and just really changing that mindset. And we have some really early adopters who were, you know, right there with us and, and Cal Fire was so behind it, so supportive. I mean, they answered a lot of issues that they had. It was a solution to some of their problems that they were being faced with. And the waste management, you know, we, we had to reduce the solid waste going to the landfills in California. There was an assembly bill mandating that. This provided a solution for that, that the beauty of it was, it wasn't just a solution for the waste. It provided amazing carbon, environmental, economic. The benefits were phenomenal and, and beauty, you know, and, and and not just the tangibles. And we ha- we're not able to quantify this yet, but we're working on it. We would love to be able to quantify 
by utilizing more of the urban wood, how much can we reduce the import of exotics from other places? And really just causing people to look at how do we get people to think first? And I'm not saying never buy something from somewhere else. There may be other reasons that propel you to do so. But look first to your local woods that are growing in our own backyards. And how can we better utilize those, repurpose those? And how can we find our wood double for, you know, what is similar to teak that grows right here in California? Well, we can we can use acacia or locust or mulberry in many of those. And then for koa, you know, we can use the acacia. So we, we have a lot of wood doubles. Let's start looking to those wood doubles and use what we have right here. And so then we just, I just started talking about that and we were networking, but we were not formal. And then we were at Sacramento Tree Foundation. We were having a meeting, you know, our networking meeting, but we weren't calling ourselves anything, you know. Finally, uh, John Melvin was sitting there with Cal Fire and he said, we just need a formal network. We need to get together. We need to do something. And so, and we'd been saying that for years. And so finally go, okay, I'll do it. And so I started a nonprofit called Urban Salvage and Reclaimed Woods, Inc. We now go by USRW. And we started just really just networking, educating, bringing in members, providing them with tools and resources that they needed and marketing. And then we started writing standards because we knew if we're going to get more arborists on board with rescuing more and get their mindset changed, we've got to find markets for this stuff. And so I approached uh, some local hardwood stores and and lumber stores here in Northern California to see about getting an urban wood corner in their stores, in, you know, mid-sized stores and see how we could get more of the wood out there. And I started to approach architects, designers, and specifiers. How, How do we get urban wood called out in some of this stuff? And they all loved the idea. You know, great carbon benefits. Yes, we love it. You know, it's local, that story, it's wonderful. But it was always that, but, you know, we bought this wood from this guy a while ago and bugs started crawling out of it. Or, you know, it's powder post beetle or, you know, it just, it wasn't dried properly. It started to move. And we realized there are no standards for urban wood. There are standards for all the other wood products that we use, but there was nothing for urban wood and it was getting a bad name. And there was no certification. The architects, oh, are you FSC certified? Are you SFI certified? Well, no, we're not. (laughs) Because we couldn't. We we tried, but we were not able to, you know, break through into that. And so we decided, okay, well, now we formed a nonprofit. Well, now it looks like our next task is to write standards and a process, a pathway for certification. And we've been working on that for several years. It was a bigger task than I meant to sign up for or thought I was signing up for, but I'm so glad I did. Uh, The standards are completed. They're endorsed. It's going to be USRW certified urban wood. It's going to encompass the salvaged wood, the deconstructed wood, and the true urban wood from our city streets. There are standards, a pathway for certification for members and partnering with those architects and designers. And they're going, okay, we're going to have a product that we can rely on. We're going to have a product that we can really get behind as truly green and sustainable and, you know, reduces transportation costs and all these other things. And they can rely on it and have that confidence because there's a chain of custody, there's transparency, and there are standards. 
So, you know, as we're writing these standards and we're networking and we're growing and we're starting to get members in Tennessee and Texas and Oklahoma, you know, and, and all these other places, Woodvisor had sent me back to Georgia to a conference back there. And I met this other group of great people who were doing the same thing we were. We did not invent the wheel. We're all doing this just in different, uh, you know, just in different parts of the world. We each have a slightly different take on it. We're doing some things better. They're doing some things better. And we're going, wait a second, what are we doing? Let's build this brand together. Mm-hmm. And so I met uh, Dwayne Sperber, who you introduced me to, Eva, or uh, vice versa. He'd introduced me to you. Brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had him on. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Rick Seward and Joe Lennon and these other people who are doing these great things. And, you know, there was Wisconsin Urban Wood, there was Illinois Urban Wood, there was Virginia Urban Wood Project and all these different things. And so we said, let's let's figure this out. And so we all met together, decided to all go to Milwaukee, all, all those that we could find, and, and there might have been more, but those that we could find, we all got together in Milwaukee and we sat down and we go, okay, what are we going to call this? What are we going to do? And they had started in the Midwest, they had started a, I think it was a full circle grant project from the U.S. Forest Service to bring in four different states into their project. And we were being funded from the U.S. Forest Service in Cal Fire in the West. And we were able to go, okay, well, let's come together. USRW will keep writing the standards. Let's make the network, the Urban Wood Network, because I think that really spells it out. And that name, they were already using that name. So we'll join our USRW into the Urban Wood Network so that we have one common voice, one common umbrella that we're all acting as. And then we kept the standards still USRW. And so, you know, we're a legal 501c3 entity, but we operate as the Urban Wood Network. And that's for that brand continuity. And it just helps get the word out there more instead of, oh, I'm a member of this or I'm a member of that. No, we're a member of this amazing mission to rescue more trees. And when we rescue more trees, we plant more trees, right? Are you able to get together on a regular basis membership nationally? We are working on strategies to do that. Yeah. One of the silver linings with COVID is we do a lot more, <laughs> a lot more meetings like this. And yeah. we partner with the Arbor Day Foundation's Partners in Community Forestry. And we've been doing that since I want to say 2019. I can't, I can't recall when we started that. Oh, the first one we were going to do was supposed to be in Louisville and that was COVID. And so with COVID, we had it through Hoova webinar. And we had 300 and some people in that. So we were able to get more than might have been able to attend our little offset meeting at the Arbor Day Foundation. So we've been doing that. We have chapters now. So we have the Western region, then we have chapters in various states around the nation. And those chapters have local meetings. And then we're working on just really developing a better platform to make sure membership has engagement at a local and a national level. So I'm friends with a couple people in the industry. And the one realization I'm coming to right now is that both you, as a, if I understand your uh, background correctly, and certainly Dwayne have really strong background in marketing. And it seems that it's such a essential piece for people that have bought the wood miser, have the wood, yeah. have the, the piece of property to set up shop but still in all, getting the word out to potential buyers is, speak to that if you can. 
Yeah, great point. Well, having the standards is is one of those things that's going to get to the bigger buyers. Google, you know, when when they buy product from my company, they want to know that chain of custody. They want to know that backstory. They, they need that data. Mm-hmm. And so having, you know, just having it certified will definitely help. I don't know that I'm an amazing marketer, but but I throw out a lot of ideas and, and I have a lot of fun with it. And I think marketing is very, very important. And Urban Wood Network received a grant last year to really work on a solid marketing program mm. and put together something that pulls from all the various connections. We've got the people on the planting side, we've got the arborists on the removal, we've got the sawyers, we've got the makers, we've got nonprofits, people who just love and support trees and tree utilization. And so we have all these different sectors that, that we're working with. And so we're hiring a marketing firm to bring all of this together. And it's a forest service is, is funding this to bring all of this together to really be able to get the word out there. Who is our audience? Who do we need to hear our message? How do we get it to them? And how do we connect all the many pieces that that make us who we are? So yeah, we're, we're really excited to dive deep into that with people who are actual experts, you know? And then, and then uh, people like Dwayne and myself and, and all the other Urban Wood Network members, we're gonna be able to pour into, just download into this marketing firm who does that day in and day out. And we're confident that we're gonna end up with something that's just beautiful. And to, our, our goal is that every, every American, even beyond America, every human understands the value of the tree while it's living, the value after it's gone and makes that full circle. Right. And, and, you know, that's that's really important. And I like the fact the way you're talking about the PR piece of it. One of the things I think is critical, I mean, you could have the best PR group in the world, mm-hmm. but if there aren't small little network fires happening all over the organization to yeah. keep spreading that word, right. um, it doesn't go as fast and it doesn't happen as fast. I, I know I was I used to be a PR agent, so I know that, that part of things is is critical. And it could be in the least place you're expecting. It could be at a local school or it could be at a high school, you know, an elementary school, high school, elementary school kids talk about everything. They love telling <laughs> their parents everything. And yeah. we learned that early on when we had our nonprofit organization in our community. And we went to the elementary schools. And as soon as we went there, everybody knew about our organization because they went home and told their parents and their grandparents and everybody else. Yeah. So it's, it's that having good PR, but also having a network that you can utilize and really yeah. push things through very quickly. Having those little voices. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in California, uh, Cal Fire, I was telling you, is a big supporter of what we do. And one of the things in order to get the grants for the organization that they require, and it's beautiful, is to replant. So every grant that's for urban and community forestry, even if it's on the biomass side or the wood utilization side, must have a tree planting component to it. And so where we chose with with one of our grants to do the replanting was actually at a high school, a local high school. That high school and one of the teachers there had asked me to come in a few, my brother and I actually, to come in a few different times and teach them about forestry and urban forestry and how that was forestry too. And teach the ag classes how this is ag also, even though it's from an urban, urban area. And so we were doing that education with those kids and passing out our uh, trees for better life and, you know, and those, and the kids are literally planting them. That makes them attached to the trees. It makes them love the trees and, and be a part of it. When we first started years and years ago, 
one of the things that, that we found out was that when you have this connection with schools, there's a different paradigm that happens on the backside where you're talking about planting. They're all into planting and they're all, but they're very sad when something comes down. What yeah. are you going to do with it? And that was a struggle when we started doing the education. They're like, but you're killing a tree. <laughs> and and so we were able to show them, you know, full that full circle of life and and every, you know, and hopefully they didn't go home going, Mom, everything dies at some point. Am I gonna die? <laughs> so hopefully they weren't doing that. We weren't opening up, you know, where the poor children need therapy, but they they were able to see that this is part of life and 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 they live in wooden houses. And wouldn't you rather something that came down anyways be used for this versus versus importing something from another country? Yeah. Uh, and and so they started to see it and resonate with it. And and just like um, just like when I was a kid in school, and they and they they would come out and teach, don't use wood. Wood is horrible. And you know. And so that campaign was working on on kids in that time frame, but it wasn't accurate science. It was well-intentioned, but it wasn't 100% accurate. And we can do the same thing with the truth, with the full circle, you know, and, and nobody's advocating clear-cutting. Nobody's advocating, go, you know, get, getting rid of, we're actually advocating planting more. And the beauty of it is when it's properly utilized, there's funds available to plant more. There's passion to plant more. And we believe that the utilization is so connected to the planting care and maintenance. It's more valued. Well, just to pivot a little bit, Hal and I work with tree tenders. And when tree tenders first started and they had all these different groups trying to get communities involved in tree tenders, one of the things that they brought in were foresters. And I'm sure you remember this, Hal. We had foresters come in. We had one lady who was an urban forester for Southeastern PA. And urban forestry back then was like, nobody's ever heard of an urban forester. (laughs) And Here she is trying to explain, and she says, I'm a little bit different than a forester. Well, these foresters came in to help work with us. Mm -hmm. And these foresters were like, we don't do that. We don't do that in the field. That's not what we do. We we actually harvest trees, and that's what we do. And it was such a disconnect between the two. But over time, you could see that there was a nice camaraderie developing, mm-hmm. even though they were working on their side of right. the forestry versus the urban forest, because they're not the same. But just that connection has actually allowed what we're doing today to really happen because there were connections and conversations yeah. between those foresters with Hal and me and everybody else in those groups for them to realize that we have a problem in urban settings that they may not have in the forest, but it is a forest issue too. Yeah. It's a little bit different that it's it's a tree that's lifting up a sidewalk or right. whatever. And that has made a huge difference being connected yeah. and talking with foresters as well as urban foresters. Right, right. And, and I think California does that very well. At, at all the meetings that we're at, the Forest Service is there with traditional foresters, traditional forestry, as well as uh, now they have a depart- an urban forestry department and then CAL FIRE's traditional forestry and urban forestry and all the voices in the room, slightly different. You know, th- there, there are differences and there are commonalities and, and focusing on how to work together for the best strategies. And it is really beautiful. I think California does a great job. I have to ask just to step off and talk a little bit about tree species with 
all your initiatives with salvaging. Does eucalyptus get used for secondary purposes? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, eucalyptus, and thankfully, because California, if you've, if you've ever driven up and down California, it was an imported tree that is everywhere. Right. It is very hard to dry. Um, but it does have use and it's beautiful. It's actually, when we dry it well, it is one of our more requested woods. And one of its doubles is anything you can use oak for. Um, they call it Australian oak. So it has you know similar properties to that. But then there's so many different varieties of eucalyptus. I know Taylor Guitars just started using it for their ironbark eucalyptus for some of their guitars. And so it can go into anything from that to we've used it for years for flooring, for countertops, for, you know, people use it for cutting boards or it gets this really cool basket weave look to it. So yeah, there there is a lot of uses for eucalyptus. My dad, my dad's a character. <laughs> he he has this saying, and he says it at every show. Somebody will go, oh, is this chunk wood? And he said, nope, if God grew it, I'm going to mill it. It has a use. He didn't make any. Good for him. So. For him. <laughs> Yay. So, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Does eucalyptus get used in industrial applications as well, or or would that be a no-no? Um, I, I've seen it used in industrial applications. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And of course, bamboo too. Bamboo is industrially used. Yeah, yeah. Kinds of things. And we've got a problem with that out here. In our, oh, do you? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we have big bamboo forests. We have people milling palm trees of all things. You know? And it produces a, I guess it's a grass. I, I am, that's not my field yeah, of expertise. It's a grass. Yeah, yeah you, you guys would know. But it's kind of cool looking when it's milled. Um, our guys hate milling it, but, but it is millable. Yeah. And then in California, is there less of a need for an owner operator to have a kiln because of your drier climates? Well, yes and no. If if you're going to get it into a commercial application, like I would never, uh, you know, mill all this hardwood and then here, Google, take this hardwood and, and put it into your application when it had not been sterilized. And mm. so in hardwoods, you, you have, you, you want to make sure it's and not just hard ones, but you want to make sure it's been sterilized so that you're not transporting bugs. We try to go local, but sometimes there's species or amounts of stuff that just can't, you, you got to give it, get it somewhere. And so if we're shipping overseas, uh, that needs to be sterilized as well. And, and, and um, sometimes it has to be stamped, you know, or, or checked by the county, you know, for, for Are that. kilns uh, for a startup business, what would uh, someone be looking at for a, a functional, modest kiln well um so i sell kilns full disclosure oh there you go (laughs) so that was um, that was that that was a really wonderful segue for you (laughs) i don't know if you knew that but (laughs) (laughs) so woodmaster sells nile kilns and the nile kiln like a kd 250 uh you can get into that for you know around eight grand for the dehumidifier and the controls and that portion of it and what we do we run niles we run eye dry i sell both of those and uh, with the Nile, we got into that one because we were able to we were able to put get a use a shipping container we already had, take that shipping container, and it, you know it's insulated, and then use that for the chamber with eight thousand dollars in the rest of it, and then 
Yeah, yeah. So, so there's another recycling. Yeah, everything that we have is re is pretty much is recycled. My parents' house is recycled, and it was before urban wood was a thing. You know, it was just because that was the mindset that that my dad had, and and so that's what I was taught. That's probably why part of why I do what I do today. So, so it's like tiny houses, tiny well, bigger kilns with with the uh, trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With with the with the container, yeah. I, I would say with the shipping container, if you had to buy it and add all the stuff, maybe twenty thousand into that kiln. You can get into it cheaper. You know, it depends on how much you do yourself. Maybe fifteen thousand, and then you get into you know the eye dries are more expensive, but they do come with a chamber. You know, it, it's you could spend hundreds of thousands, or you could spend you know fifteen thousand and everything in between. I know a lot of Arborist buddies listen to the show, so I'll ask the question that they might be thinking is, uh, so uh, someone brings a really beautiful straight eucalyptus log in and you guys mill it mm-hmm. and it goes in the kiln. How long is it in the kiln for on average? We So eucalyptus isn't one that we will put in the kiln green. Uh, okay. There may be people better at drying than we are, and I'm sure yeah. there are, but we don't put it in green. We air dry that, and we air dry it flat with nice stickers, good airflow, get it down below, even below 20, you know, quite a bit below 20% moisture content and then put it, you know, put it into the kiln. Um, actually, I take that back. With with eucalyptus, we want it even lower. <laughs> like we want it as low as, it'll, you know, maybe 11, 12%. In, and that's what it'll get, you know, just air drying out here for, for the most part and then bring it off from there. And then we find that we get better. Okay. We are doing so many different species. We are not the drying experts. We sell kilns. We dry our own wood. But we, yeah. with those with those species that are harder to dry until someone who has more time to devote to it than we do comes up with a great drying schedules, moisture reintroduction at just the right point for that, we're going to continue to put it in, let, let it get down to a certain moisture content and then dry it. Otherwise, we've not been happy with our results. Other than I see. Ones. And I, that's, you know, that's great. That's, yeah. that's great to know. Yeah. So and, if and someone may choose something different, great. I'd love their secrets. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I'm assuming if a tree company, if an arborist wants to, you know, get into this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe the company's just at a point where they want to go in a different direction. They're buying the wood miser. They're buying a, a kiln system. Um, and then I'm, I'm assuming one way or another, they're going to get some technical support either from the company itself. Like does a, a field rep come out? I'm, I'm switched over to Northeastern United States at this point. So sawmills get a, a free hands-on training. Okay. For every large, you know, every trailer to mill. Okay. Some of the mills are like crated and you're putting them together at your home yourself, but the ones that are together, you know, you get into a $15,000 mill, we're going to get, or, or more, we're going to give you a full training on it. You're going to saw a log on it. You're going to know how to do this. Woodmiser provides tons of literature on proper drying, proper maintenance. We show you how to maintain it. There is free tech support on a Woodmiser for the life of the mill over the phone. Now, we come out and we're going to work on it at your place. We're going to have to charge for that. <laughs> you, bring mm-hmm. it, you know, we put our hands on it. We have to charge for it. But over the phone tech support and the same, you know, the same with the kilns and not each office specializes in the kilns, but you can always go back to Nile directly or back to iDry directly. Or, or to someone who's specializing in them. Because there's, you know, there's offices for each of those around the nation. Gotcha. And you had mentioned, and I, this is something I've kind of learned over the years, 
that the the uh, blades for a wood miser are very reasonably priced. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, versus the good old days with the yeah. cartoon style mm-hmm. <laughs> of whatever you would call those circular blades. Right. So you're forced to enter this. You know, that was one of the when I first started talking to the arborists way back when I started to network and pull people together, they were, oh, no, we're going to hit metal. You know, people put their their uh, yard sale signs right. or their swing. Close lines, yes. Yeah. So there's there's hardware in these logs. We, you know, we can't afford that. It's too dangerous. It's that. Well, you can hit metal and nobody's getting hurt on a modern sawmill. Yeah. You know, it's there's there's precautions in place. It's it's very safe. My kids operate them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, half since they were little. And then the cost of the blades. I mean, you can get blades from then. It was way under twenty dollars. You can get a blade for. And now with the, you know cost of inflation and everything, it's it's more a little more than that. You know, it's in the twenties to thirties, depending on the blade. But you figure that's reasonable. It's it's very reasonable for what you're getting out of it. And and so it's, it's part of the cost of doing business, and you factor that in. Are are the blades made in the U.S.? Do you know? They're made in Indianapolis. The ones that we sell. Yeah. Great. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, that's American actually made. cheaper than a chainsaw chain. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Be careful. People are going to turn in their chainsaws and get sawmills. <laughs> <laughs> but you need both. You I, need know, both. <laughs> I know. I know. Confusing. But yeah, that's really fascinating. How And of course, that all comes because people are doing more and more of this milling. Correct. And as an urban, uh, as an urban project. And I think it's really an amazing uh, hats off to you and your group uh, for being able to commit yourself and really push this forward. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. I think the internet played a nice part in uh, the do-it-yourself movement too. I noticed, Jennifer, on the website, you guys sell, uh, do you call them cookies? I hate that term. We call them cookies. Yeah, we call them cookies. (laughs) But just that you can go out and buy the um, hairpin table uh, yeah. legs and stuff yeah. like that and put something together pretty quickly mm-hmm. and, and have a piece. Yeah, you can. So Yeah, they came from a tree that might have been special to you. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great yeah, conversation. We've learned so much. Uh, we were doing a quick tally, but, you know, uh, the Planet Trading Trees podcast is really, um, we've been pleased to kind of promote your industry, which is, you know, relatively young and coming up in a timely fashion just because there's so many factors at play in horticulture and arboriculture and uh, managing our carbon footprint. And this is this is one of the great strategies. Yeah, yeah, interesting that my my company with my business partner, we actually joined uh, the Urban Wood Network as as advocates. Yeah, I saw that. Great. Uh, one of the things that we did was we brought Dwayne in for a symposium. People had never, like, never knew what was going on out west. And <laughs> a couple of years, quite a number of years ago now, I guess it was 2008 or 18 or 2019, something like that. But in just in that short time period, things have really moved forward with Urban Wood. And it, it's really nice to have you on and talk about it. But we have to ask you your our, our favorite question. What is your favorite tree? What is my favorite tree? Um, it, it's a bizarre tree, but just just for the well, boy. Now I've got a second one. <laughs> That's okay. You can have. We can have more than one. We play it pretty loose. 
Yeah, we, we love Claro Walnut. I mean, it, it's just fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And so, I mean, Claro Walnut is probably my favorite. Probably second favorite is, is one. And I think it's my second favorite because so many people have thought of it as trash for so, so long. And that's Cottonwood. Oh, yes. I know it's close, you know, to the poplar and um, poplar has uses, but out here, cottonwood, just everybody thought of cottonwood as absolute trash. That's horrible. And, um, and we had always smelled it because we would get it in and, and every once in a while you get this burl cluster in it and it's just delightful. I did my whole office, the wainscoting in a new office that we moved into last year. And I did all that in cottonwood and then trimmed it out in Clara Walnut with Fiddleback. And oh, it's to die. Oh my goodness. I think it's gorgeous. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> you have to come visit. It's amazing. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds beautiful. And yeah. and there you have your favorite tree and your favorite wood. <laughs> correct. Correct. And I love the walnut trees. Now, I don't want one in my front yard, but a little distant. Then, then I love the walnut trees. They're absolutely beautiful. Well, we again, we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thanks, Jennifer. Good luck with everything. All right. Thank you. You as well. Bye-bye. 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 The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.